Welcome to Prep Talk, the emergency management podcast. Find out what you need to know about preparedness, get all the latest tips from experts in the field, and learn what to do before the next disaster strikes. From the emergency management department in the city that never sleeps, here are your hosts. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening. I am Tashawn Brown. And I'm Ashley Holm. Welcome to another episode of Prep Talk, where we discuss all things in emergency management. You can follow us on social media on our Twitter at NYC Emergency MPT, also on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and much more. On this episode of Prep Talk, as we kick off the summer, we are joined by Carrie Olson, the Assistant Commissioner of the Bureau of Environmental Surveillance and Policy at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Today, we will discuss precautions New Yorkers should take to beat the heat and talk about how the city responds to heat. Thank you for joining us. Please share with our listeners your role and how you got started in the field. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, As you shared, I work here in New York City at the largest local health department in the country, um, which I've been doing for almost 20 years now. Uh, I came to the city to go to grad school in public health, and I became really fascinated with how we can use data to understand the health of populations and then use those data to create program and policies that can reduce inequities, the differences that we see in health between groups that are caused by our systems and in our society. So I now work in environmental health, and my team is responsible for building what I think of as sort of a foundation of environmental health data and research. And we use those data to then improve the health of all New Yorkers, over 8 million of us. Um, A particular interest to our conversation today is we have our climate health program in my bureau, um, which is a true passion of mine. Climate change is the largest, most pervasive, and longest lasting public health emergency of our generation, and unfortunately, for those to come. And I count myself incredibly lucky to be working with experts in um, health impacts from climate change. And a huge focus of our work is how we can prepare for and be resilient to those health impacts from climate change across all the different and diverse communities in our amazing city here in New York City. Our agency, the New York City Emergency Management, often works alongside uh, the health department, especially during heat emergencies. Um, how does the health department respond to extreme heat? What are some of the triggers that cause a response? And what is that response like? Yeah, I, you know, I'm going to start with the second part of your question about the triggers for a heat emergency, because I think it helps to to define what we're talking about. Um, The National Weather Service actually declares heat advisories in our city based on either having two days in a row with a heat index of 95 to 99 degrees during the day, or any single day that has a maximum heat index of 100 degrees or more. Um, And a heat index, just as a reminder for those who don't know, is a combination of the temperature plus humidity that really gives us a sense of not only how hot the temperature is, but what it really feels like. 
Um, so heat advisories, um, which is really about focusing on the heat as an emergency and taking action, is incredibly important for the health of our residents. And that's something that we've really focused on here at the health department. A big part of what we do is we track the health impacts of heat, as well as other types of weather emergencies. And we try to understand who is vulnerable and then use those data, as I was talking about before, to take action really create programs and inform policies. And so our data on heat health impacts show that at 95 degrees, when we get that heat index at 95, there's actually an exponential increase, a huge increase in heat-related deaths um, from that temperature and on up. And actually, we shared that information both with you all at New York City Emergency Management back in 2008, and then our colleagues at the National Weather Service, and they changed the level for heat advisories in New York City from what at the time was over 100 degrees for that advisory to be issued to the current triggers that are 95 degrees for a couple days in a row because of that evidence of how it's impacting New Yorkers' health. So, you know, we're continuing our work all the time. I mean, that was back in 2008. We're, we're all the way in 2023 now. And we're still monitoring and working to understand heat health impacts. And one of the things that I, I like to emphasize is that well, it's important for people to pay attention and take precautions during heat waves, which we know climate change is making longer and hotter um, because they can be more deadly. It's also important to remember that we want everyone to realize that extreme heat days are the most dangerous, but non-extreme, but still hot summer days. So those are days when the temperature is getting over, you know, 82, 85 degrees, but is not quite at that 95 degrees. Those days also take a, a toll on our health. So every year in New York City, 300, approximately 370 people die because of the heat in the summer. And about 100 of those deaths are due to extreme heat, those heat waves. And all the rest are happening on hot, but not extremely hot days. So overall, we know our summer temperatures are increasing. So all the summer days are getting hotter. And we're going to have many more days reaching 90 degrees or higher in our future, which is why we have to not only be prepared for heat emergencies, which I know is our focus today, but we also need to be thinking about ways to make ourselves and our city more resilient through structural and policy changes to address the heat and climate change. Thank you for that. As you stated before, extreme heat emergencies are one of the deadliest. What can New Yorkers do to protect themselves from extreme heat? You mentioned monitoring. What else can they do to protect themselves? And why is it one of the deadliest emergencies? Yeah, thank you for that question. I, I think that, you know, heat is actually called the silent killer because we, um, sort of the large we society, doesn't consider it dangerous in the same way as when we think about things like, for example, hurricanes or other kinds of extreme weather. But heat actually kills more people every year in our city, in our state, and also in our country than all other kinds of extreme weather combined. 
And I can give you uh, an example very close to home here in New York City. Um, Superstorm Sandy was devastating to our city. Um, anybody who was here at the time remembers it. And it caused significant damage to our infrastructure and caused 52 direct deaths. Um, and, you know, we all think of it quite rightly as a major emergency, a true disaster. Um, and when we talk about summer heat, it just doesn't feel comparable. And yet over the 10 summers since Sandy happened in 2012, more than 3,500 New Yorkers have died because of the heat. There's good news though, heat related deaths are preventable. And so the best protection for individuals when we think about our protecting ourselves is air conditioning, getting relief from the heat. This is an environmental health hazard the exposure is what's causing um, those health impacts. And so we want to try to reduce the exposure. So anyone with an air conditioner should be using it. And I want to emphasize that when those temperatures really get high, fans don't provide enough protection. But you can set your air conditioning at 78 degrees or that low cool setting to be safe, comfortable, and also save money and energy, which is important during those summer months. Now, we know that more than 90% of New Yorkers have air conditioning in their homes, but it's not the case for everyone. In some of our lowest income neighborhoods, which are home to a majority of people of color, nearly a quarter of households don't have an air conditioner. So that's one in four, which really reflects systemic racism and access to safe and affordable housing and also other resources. So anyone without air conditioning can apply for a free air conditioner through the Home Energy Assistance Program, which has a cooling assistance component, and you can find that at access.nyc.gov. But it's not a quick process, so want to emphasize people should apply now before it's too hot. And I also recommend that everyone have a plan for some place to visit, a public space with air conditioning, a friend, a neighbor, where you can get some relief from the heat. Also, everyone can lower their window shades um, or their curtains and block the sunlight during the day, which can help keep your home cooler and try not to use the stove or the oven, which produce their own ambient heat. Also, a cool shower or bath can help. And of course, always stay hydrated. We know that's always important, but particularly when it's hot out. And that's also really important for those of us who will be outside. We still you know, do things outside. And when we're experiencing a heat emergency, we really recommend limiting the amount of time that you're outside during the day, especially in the middle of the day when it's the hottest. Um, and you wanna avoid those really strenuous activities. If you're trying to decide which day to, um, you know, be training for that marathon, if it's a heat advisory day, maybe put it off until the, the heat goes down. Also, we can dress for the weather, use lightweight, some protective clothing, put on the hat that your mom always told you you should put on, and also use your sunscreen. And then the shade is really important. Stay out of the direct sun. And if you have to work outside, which many of us do, it's important to take frequent breaks in the shade or get to an air-conditioned space if it's possible. 
There's also certain New Yorkers who are more susceptible to extreme heat and the health consequences. So I just want to make sure to, to call that out so people are aware. In general, people who are most at risk are those who don't have air conditioning in their homes, as we already discussed, or who can't afford to turn their air conditioning on, and also those who have other health conditions that can increase their risk. So those include being older, 65 years or older, and having a chronic medical condition like heart or kidney disease. If you have a serious mental health condition like schizophrenia or cognitive conditions like dementia, those can put you at more risk. And certain medications can actually make it difficult for your body to stay cool. So you should make sure to talk with your medical provider if you have regular medications that you take that might impact your body's temperature control. Misusing drugs and alcohol can put you at greater risk and also those who have any sort of limited mobility um, who are unable to easily leave the space that they're in in order to get someplace that's cooler. And understanding this increased risk is also where we see a clear connection to social and environmental justice issues. When we look at the data, people who have limited financial resources and Black New Yorkers are at the highest risk of death from the heat in New York City. And we know that Black New Yorkers face a greater risk because of economic and social disparities, which stem from structural racism, which I was mentioning earlier about access to safe and affordable housing. So I'll stop there. I always have a lot to say about this, but <laughs> hope that's helpful. No, thank you. That was very important information you shared. Thank you so much for sharing that and your tips. Thank you, Carrie. I just wanted to follow up on some of the things you mentioned in terms of the equities and lower income New Yorkers, specifically uh, Black New Yorkers being at a higher risk from the heat. Besides like AC, uh, the lack of AC in some households and the lack of adequate housing, are there other contributing factors to that, like uh, lack of tree cover in certain neighborhoods or, or anything like that? Yeah, you know, when we think about working to to address heat and address climate change, it's it's bigger than just air conditioning. Air conditioning is incredibly important, but there's no silver bullet. You know, that's not the only thing we can do and it's not the only tool. And so, you know, we need a lot of different strategies and greening our city is a is definitely an, a really important one, particularly in under-resourced areas. Um, we want to try to create more space where we can alleviate the urban heat island effect, which is an effect that is caused by the fact we have so much impermeable surface, which basically is just, you know, concrete. It's not ground cover. It's not greenery. And that actually soaks up and stores the heat, which can make the temperatures in our city much hotter than rural and suburban areas. And so um, you're really hitting on something when you're mentioning the importance of thinking about how we can do that in an equitable way and really look at different neighborhoods across our city and see those that are at greatest risk for heat-related health impacts and think about different methods we can use to make them greener, help increase the use of air conditioning in residential settings, and also create more opportunities for resilience with our neighbors and our friends. Great. Thank you. Appreciate that. I know we talked about some of the people that are vulnerable to heat, things you should do to 
stay cool during heat emergencies. But what are some of the signs of heat exhaustion? What should you do if immediately if you're experiencing some of those symptoms? And uh, what other general tips can you share? Yeah, so keeping cool can be really hard work for our bodies, and that that's what causes heat exhaustion. So I want everybody to keep keeping an eye out when it is very hot out for symptoms. There's a whole list of them, so I'm going to kind of run through them. Excessive sweating. I'm a sweater, so you know I know that we can all get sweaty when it's hot out, but if it's really excessive, and if you also have cold or clammy skin with that, muscle cramps, lightheadedness, headache, decreased energy, or loss of appetite or even some nausea. Those can all be signs if you're also very hot. And if you or somebody you're with start experiencing those signs, that's when you really want to try to get into a cool space, get that relief from the heat, remove any excess clothing, right? If you're wearing your very attractive, you know, fashion jacket, now it's the time to take it off. And also, of course, drink fluids, drink water. And the whole focus there is really trying to avoid heat stroke, if at all possible. So this is when our body's temperature rises so quickly that it becomes a true emergency. And the symptoms are of that are when you have hot, dry skin, confusion or hallucinations, People can actually lose consciousness, have trouble breathing, have a very fast and strong pulse. So your heart is beating very fast and dizziness. And if any of those symptoms are happening, it's important to call 911 or go immediately to an emergency room. The big tip that I really want to double down on here is that it's really important for all of us, and New Yorkers are so good at this, to be a buddy to others when it's hot outside because we can really help people who we know may be at risk. So, you know, we encourage folks to check in on their family members, their friends, their neighbors, to make sure they're safe and and that they are finding ways to stay cool. Um, Remind them if they have AC to turn it on. Um, You all may know someone like my grandmother used to be. Um, She would always say that AC is just too cold. I'm used to the heat, but we need to remind folks that when it's very hot, it's not just about comfort. It's really about staying safe and staying alive. Thank you for sharing that. As you stated, New York City has many initiatives for New Yorkers impacted by extreme heat. One is cooling centers. Can you tell us more about cooling centers and why it is important for New Yorkers to know about them? Yes, cooling centers are a critical part of the city's response and our work to help New Yorkers find that relief from the heat, which I keep talking about. They're coordinated by you all at New York City Emergency Management and are in public spaces across our city, which are known and and guaranteed to be open and have air conditioning during a heat advisory. So these are places that you already know. Many of them are libraries, um, senior centers that are operated with funding by our colleagues at New York City Aging, and are really operated by trusted community organization partners. And many of these places are available all the time. Like we could go to the library right now, whether it's hot outside or not, and they have great information, activities, reasons to be there, right? They're they're part of the social infrastructure of our city. 
but during a heat advisory, they are confirmed that their AC will be on and their doors will be open, welcoming New Yorkers who need to get a relief, a little bit of relief from the heat. And so New Yorkers can go online to nyc.gov slash beat the heat, or they can call 311 to find out where they can go in the moment to get a break from the heat at one of these cooling centers. And it's important to remember that even taking just a couple hours in a cooler space can reduce the risk of having some type of heat-related illness. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I know you mentioned a lot about climate change and how it's impacting our weather, making heat emergencies more frequent. Recently, New York City has was impacted by hazardous air quality due to the ongoing wildfires in Canada which have been caused by extreme temperatures and drought. How does the health department respond to poor air quality and what precautions should people take uh, knowing that this may be somewhat of a new norm? Yeah, we're all thinking about that after the experiences just a, a couple weeks ago. So that was an unprecedented event of poor air quality in our city, which was caused by the wildfire smoke from Canada, as you mentioned. And unfortunately, climate change and the increased risk of wildfires that come with climate change means that we are likely to have more such incidents. So that was really the first as opposed to the one and only. So one of the most important things that I really want to encourage all New Yorkers is that we need to learn about and understand what's called the air quality index, including how we can check the current levels at the EPA's AirNow site. That's airnow.gov. The good news is that New York City generally has very good and actually improving air quality. Typical levels for the AQI or that air quality index during this time of year are in the good AQI range. So green means everything's great. Enjoy your outdoor activities. We do get and have in the past periodic about less than 10 days a year when we'll get air quality advisories for ozone, which is different from the PM 2.5 or fine particulate matter that comes from smoke. Those ozone levels will get the advisories that can impact people with asthma or other respiratory conditions. This is the orange level of the AQI, so unhealthy for sensitive populations, but not something that we really, for healthy people, need to be too concerned about increased risk. We've only had one day with AQI levels for PM 2.5, like from the smoke, in the unhealthy for everyone range since 2012, before what we experienced just two weeks ago. And that was also due to wildfire smoke. So unusual, but definitely something that we may be seeing. So our neighbors who have chronic illnesses, allergies, or other sensitivities to poor air quality should work with their providers on treatment plans and strategies for times when the air quality levels may reach those unhealthy, those unhealthy ranges. And this is something they're already thinking about. So for example, those who may have asthma are already talking with their providers about managing their asthma, using their rescue inhalers, their other regular medications to, to control that. And we can encounter these types of situations, you know, in our everyday life. And we just need to be applying those things when we start to see 
the potential of one of these air quality events that may make our ambient, the outdoor air across the board and all of our neighbors a little bit worse. Also, all New Yorkers need to be listening for advisories, um, which come from the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation and then New York City Management, the Health Department, the city will be amplifying and sending out more information. And then we all need to think about and adjust our plans according to our own sensitivities to that air pollution and the guidance that will come out from the city. There's a couple key things to keep in mind if you're trying to reduce exposure to poor air quality outside. So the chance of being affected by the particles in the air or the ozone increases with more strenuous physical activity and the longer time that you are outside without breaks. And so we can modify our plans as needed based on how sensitive we are and what we're experiencing. I also want to mention, particularly important in the context of, of what we're chatting about here today, is that poor air quality and heat can happen at the same time. And we always want people to remember that the danger from the heat, particularly of being inside in a hot, closed up apartment, is very dangerous, can definitely affect your health. And we need folks to protect themselves against the heat first. So we don't want folks sort of shutting themselves up inside in a space that's too hot. Thank you for that, Carrie. You discussed a lot about climate change and how it is a passion of yours. I know this could take forever to discuss all the initiatives <laughs> the health department has, but um, if you can just discuss maybe like the few that are that you're passionate about, um, any initiatives that the health department is working on or has implemented to combat climate change. You know, I'm just going to emphasize two two things. One is, you know, we work really closely with other agencies like you all at NYC Emergency Management and our Mayor's Office of Climate and Environmental Justice, um, who really take the lead on developing climate policy to make sure our city is prepared for climate change. And they use our data and our work to understand who's most at risk and how we can prioritize communities. And so I just want to direct people to check out the city's new and ambitious sustainability plan, which is called Plan YC, um, which has been designed to reduce New York City's contributions to climate change while also adapting our city to the realities of our warming climate. And then the other thing that I want to just call out is the importance of social resiliency programs, creating strong social connections at the hyper local level. So in our immediate neighborhoods is really key to making sure that our government programs and infrastructure improvements are reaching the people who need them through trusted messengers. And it also gives us in government a way to hear from community members and build on all of their strengths and what they already have in their communities. When they're done well, they can really increase social connectedness among neighbors and connect people to resources like the cooling centers we were talking about or the assistance programs to get AC like the home energy assistance program. So this is basically being a buddy at a neighborhood level and we know that communities are 
that are connected have better outcomes across all types of public health emergencies, including climate-related ones. And the health department has piloted this work in our Be a Buddy program with uh, some amazing community partners providing funding and technical assistance as these community organizations develop the best ways to connect within their communities, building on assets and strengths that they know best. So I just think that in whatever ways we can continue to help across our city, different communities to connect better and be helping one another as we face, uh, as a city, the changing climate and adapt to it, the better off we'll be. Thank you so much. Definitely. So again, thank you, Kari. It is rapid response time. And if you are a first time listener, it is simple. Prep Talk will ask questions and our guests will give the first answer that comes to mind. But before rapid response, Here's a message from New York City Emergency. New York City needs your help to make our communities safer, stronger, and better prepared. Support your community by getting involved in the NYC Emergency Management Share Your Space Survey. Do you manage or own a facility in NYC with a large interior room, like a community center? A place of worship? or a campus facility? These can be used for outreach, for training, as a gathering space in an emergency, or as a disaster recovery center for your community. Community spaces can be used as a resource before, during, and after an emergency. Organizations citywide are encouraged to participate. Go to nyc.gov slash share your space survey. There, you can register your space. By working together, we can build resilient communities, one space at a time. Learn more at nyc.gov slash share your space survey or call 311. It's time for Prep Talk Rapid Response. All right, now we'll get started. So. What do you carry with you every day that will help you during an emergency? I guess I should say my phone or something like that. But the first thing that came into my head is photos of my kids, just having them with me and knowing where they are and being aware of them. And I have not only photos on my phone, but also in my wallet. So I think that helps me be strong in an emergency and it's part of my connectedness. I think that's a good one. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I'm big on photos. Uh, what is your favorite disaster movie or book? Oh, um, to pick a favorite one is a little bit hard, but I'm going to go with one that I that's sort of top of mind. It's both a book and a really fantastic TV show. It's called Station Eleven. I highly recommend both the book and the TV show, which are are different enough too that you can really enjoy them both. It's actually a pandemic disaster, but I promise that it's even after COVID, it's still a really interesting look at that and celebrates the arts in really amazing ways. Okay, great, I'll have to check that one out. So we know that uh, working in public health can be very uh, stressing job sometimes and you know, it's, it's very uh, high stakes. So what are some of the hobbies you do to relax and kind of de-stress? 
Uh, I'm currently just loving tennis. I played as a kid in high school and then didn't play for 25 years and then picked up a racket again about two years ago. And it's so much fun. It's great exercise. I get to spend time with amazing folks and, you know, hit a ball around. So that's, I think that's my favorite right now. <laughs> but you're not, you're not playing in 95 degree weather. Exactly. That's right. When it's a heat advisory, then we postpone. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Right. Absolutely. Uh, describe your work in one word. Uh, I'm going to go with impactful. At least that's my hope. Oh, definitely. That's a good one. Well, again, thank you, Carrie. Yes, Carrie. We really appreciate you joining us and, and being part of our podcast. That's this episode of Prep Talk. If you like what you heard, you can listen anytime online or through your favorite RSS feed. Until next time, stay safe and prepared.